Well, welcome. Again, it's a third series on the four Psalms. I thought this one was a little too long maybe to do responsively, but it was also long enough that I thought maybe we'll do just that one and not also do an epistle reading. Uh, like I said before, they're just four Psalms I picked because I liked them. Uh, today, we're, as we, you know, we're looking at Psalm 104. It is sometimes nicknamed the third creation story in the Bible. If you go back to Genesis, there's the first one, the one we're most familiar with, right? God said, let there be light, there was light. And then the next one, which starts out with, in the beginning when God made the heavens and the earth, and then it goes on with the Adam and Eve stories. That's number two. This one mostly agrees with the first two, and it's more kind of put in the form of a poem, and maybe kind of a retelling. Maybe it's not its own version, I guess, exactly. Uh, but it does tell you that there wasn't just one fixed canonical creation story for the ancient Jewish people. That they talked about how God created the earth, but they didn't have like one set text that answered it all. A lot of this got, became compiled later. And they were perfectly comfortable telling the story of how God created the earth and the heavens in different ways. It took me a little bit to get used to that, that there wasn't just one single version and that, but the need to have everything always literal, again, that's more our concern than their concern. They clearly were not worried about that in ancient times. And so here it is in the form of a poem. It was probably sung. It talks about the geography of the world in kind of an interesting way uh, when you look at it. So he, some of these verses here that talk about it, verse you know, two through three, you stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You set, five and six, you set the earth on its foundations so that it shall not be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. Verse nine, you set a boundary that they, the waters, may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. And all the way later in 25, yonder is the sea, great and wide, creeping things innumerable are there. So above us is a tent that holds back waters that sit on big empty chambers that are held up with giant beams. And the earth is on pillars and there's this sort of field that holds back the waters, which are full of creeping things. I understand they were creeping things. Did they think that everything was lizards in the water? One of the things you learn is the ancient Jewish people were not seafaring people. They generally looked at the ocean with a lot of suspicion. They lived close to it, but they never really were big sea people. So here's a diagram somebody's kind of sketched out, of how the ancient Israelites viewed the world, right? So there you go. You got the firmament up above, and you got the, you, you got the big barrier, you got the floodgates, the pillars underneath, and Sheol, which is where you went, with you, where you died, was just kind of a dark place somewhere under there. And there was water up above, because, well, how does the water come down? It has to be up above, right? And um, 
So they, they more or less thought the world looked something like this. And it made sense to people who don't have telescopes or satellites to be able to look at things. I mean, the Earth shakes, so clearly something must be under it shaking it, right? Uh, there must be something that's rattling, because if it was solid, it wouldn't rattle, right? And the water pours out of the sky, so there must be water up there. And if you think about it, if you ever go under water on a bright day and you look up, what do you see? Glistening little stars all over the place, right? So it kind of looks like you're looking up at the heavens. But what do you do with a worldview that's so different? What do you do today with that? Because we do have telescopes and satellites. Well, there's kind of the three basic ways that people approach this. You know, you've got the fundamentalist answer, which is to either try to explain it away or say, you know, satellites be damned. Right? Or you just dismiss it. Oh, it's just outmoded, primitive, Bronze Age thinking. <laughs> I think, who was it that said that? Was it like Dawkins one time got on a talk show and he's like, why should we have to listen to Bronze Age peasants? Oh my, well, if they're peasants, they're definitely stupider than professors, right? There, there was so much oozing condescension in that. But that's him. I kind of, psychologically, I think he was the kid who grew up and didn't have a lot of friends, so now he's going to take it out on all the Christians and be how so much, because now I've risen above all, the, all those people. I don't know, that's my psychoanalysis. You can question it. The third version, of course, is that we take it for the meanings and the truths that it gives as poetry and as an expression of faith. The whole, how do we read the Bible creation stories bit, I feel like I have to come back to that every so often and repeat it because I really believe it's so important that we understand that, this, that the way that we look at the Bible, especially as Lutheran Christians, and that there are different ways to understand truth other than either it's literally true or it's fantasy, opinion, lie, meaning. Right? That's what our world does. We take, we take fact on one side, we throw everything else on the other side and say, everything else doesn't matter. This is all that matters. If you can't count it and measure it, it isn't real. It's in your head. Right? But when you read Psalm 104, you've got to step back a little bit. You're reading poetry written to remind people that God is mighty and awesome that God is the true creator of the world who made it good, unlike the neighboring peoples who believed the world was like a dragon, made from a dragon or something. It's full of poetic language that's painting a picture to get your imagination going, to draw you into it. Look at verse 3. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. I don't believe even the ancient people believed God literally had a chariot. The Greeks did. The Jewish people did not. It conjures up a picture, doesn't it, though? God kind of sailing through the sky, the Spirit going through everything. It's hard to tell when you read this always what parts they think are literal and what parts were poetry, what parts are images and analogies and metaphors. Some of it, you do have to admit, they kind of did believe. The whole bit about the pillars and stuff, I think they really did believe that. 
the sky being full of water, I think they probably did believe that. I don't think they believed the chariot part. And the psalm, of course, it just mixes all these things willy-nilly. It mixes the images, it mixes the geography. You know, there's no concern about separating fact from meaning. It all is one. In our world, right, we divide those things, but I think there's something that's missing. If you believe that all truth that can't be measured is just in your head. In the Bible, there isn't a distinction. There aren't facts without meanings. There aren't experiences without an encounter with God. Nothing exists without God, so you can't talk about things without talking about God. Whether it's earthquakes or rain or whatever. It's all one picture. It's all one big experience. They see the world the way a painter does. You know? And that's the, way, that's the best way to describe it. That's kind of what I've found is the best analogy. Ancient people viewed the world like painters view the world. There was a, I got to see, I finally got to see the Grand Canyon over sabbatical. Um, only took me, you know, 50 years to get there. Um, and, and I remember I was reading about, there was a, one of the early expeditions. They sent, there were two people that came on the expedition. One was a photographer. And of course, his machine was this big monster thing, right? You know, and it had the accordion thing. And they had a picture of him holding it up to get a picture of it. But the photos were just black and white back then. So they also brought along a painter to give a sense of what it felt like to be at the Grand Canyon. Which one was more real? The black and white photo that gave the facts as it is? Or the painter who covered all the reds and oranges and browns and hues? What probably gave you a sense of what the Grand Canyon was really like? That's, that's kind of how you have to look at how the Bible describes things. You have to sit back and kind of let it speak to you. And I think you'll get a lot more truth out of it that way if you soak it in than if you're trying to make it into a science book. And, and this is where we miss out on so much of our world today. When we try to reduce everything to facts or in your head. But you'll notice that, and I find an interesting observation too, when you look out around our culture, even though there's fewer people who come to worship, even though there's fewer people who are actual contributing members of some sort of religious organization, there's still most people are not prepared to go as far as Dawkins and Hitchens and these guys and say, there is nothing beyond atoms and physics and that's all there is and nothing more. That most people, even if they identify as no particular religion, are not quite ready to go that far. Most of us are not quite ready to say there's nothing more beyond there. So you get lines like, I'm spiritual but not religious. You know, I don't, want to get, I, I don't want to participate in something, but I'm not ready to say that there is nothing. I'm not ready to go all, I'm not ready to, to stat, go that strongly believe in that. And so, and I think that tells you something about human nature that I think we all kind of know deep down, that there is something more. 
Maybe, even, maybe we may debate what it is or how we encounter it, but we know there's something more. And that what's sad to me is to see how many people don't see the church as the place where you go to experience that something more. They see the church as the place where they're trying to convince you they're literal, that the world is flat and there's literal pillars underneath it. There's a great line I saw um, from a, what was he, I think a Northern Ireland Christian young guy gets on there and he goes, there's only two people in the world that take the Bible literally. Atheists and fundamentalists. Because atheists want to say, you guys take this literally, so look how dumb you are. And fundamentalists want to go, no atheists, you're wrong. It's scientific truth. And they're both missing the point. They're both missing the point. And it's sad to me to see that. That, because to me, church community is that vehicle for encountering and experiencing the God of the universe. It's the it isn't the place where we shut off our scientific views. It's where we embrace a world full of a lot more richness and color. For me, having dug through the Bible for years and dug through some of the ugliest passages in it, the con looked at the contradictions. You know, Judas died in two different ways. <coughs> Either he hung himself or he tripped on a rock. He didn't do both. Although I've heard fundamentalists say, the rope snapped and when he fell down, there was a sharp rock underneath it and he hit that. And I'm like, wow, you are more creative. That takes more creativity to be a fundamentalist, I think, than to just admit that we, that we don't exactly know which one of those is. But either way, right, having dug through all this and even looked at the crazy stories, the ones that, that make me face palm, like Balaam's talking donkey. Yeah, you, you, you don't hear a lot of Balaam's sermons coming out of Lutheran pastors. So you're probably not familiar with it. Look it up, it's in there. The donkey talks to him, like Mr. Ed, you know. And, uh, you know, but all that said, I still love the Bible for the way that it is the gateway to a truth about God and an experience that's bigger and more awesome than me, which is what the writer of Psalm 104 wants you to take away from this. The experience of the great grace and beauty and majesty of God who makes this world. Let's look at, go back to Psalm 104 again, verse 24. Verse 24, so it goes through all these descriptions. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And it's interesting because it's not in the past tense either. It's you do, you do stretch out the heavens, etc. But verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. It starts wrapping up with this statement, something profound, easily missed. God made all things with wisdom. With wisdom, there's a reason for life being here and why life is the way it is. It means that there's a wisdom to there being slugs. There's a wisdom to rattlesnakes. I know it's kind of hard to believe. Take away all the rattlesnakes and see and watch all the pack rats explode, right? That, that, that it means that there's a wisdom for there being packs of wolves that roam around and eat the big animals. That there's a wisdom to bison roaming all over the prairies that they don't just exist to trample your fences. 
There's a wisdom to God, to how things are. And we were a part of that. And I read that and I'm like, what a value. If things are made with a wisdom, then there is a value to them. And we're a part of that. But how quickly we forget that. And think that, that our usefulness for something, some animal or piece of environment is the only way to see it. If I can't make money off the bison, shoot it. Boom. If the wolf is going to take my cow, shoot it. Boom. Right? Now the world is made the way God made it. And I'm like, wait, so God made the things in wisdom, but you had to fix it? Aren't you kind of saying you think God made it wrong? What are we saying here? Nothing is here by God that is not meant to be here, that is not good to be here. Even I will admit, I don't know how tapeworms fit into that. <laughs> and if they cease to exist, I'm not sure anyone would care, and I can't even, I'm not even sure what environmental damage it would do. But I must believe that God somewhere has a wisdom for that. Verse 30. When you send forth your spirit... They are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And the world is spiritual. It is made and sustained by God's Spirit. Material things are spiritual things. They're not opposites. You don't find God's Spirit by renouncing the things God made. You encounter the Spirit in them. It's not spirit versus matter. It's spirit makes matter. And it is all done in wisdom, and it is all good. And how marvelous it is. Amen.